Some days are terrible, you wish that you were dead And some days are magical, like grape banana bread Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads The voices in our heads Hello, hello everybody, friends, family, countrymen, countrywomen, country days Congratulations on not killing yourself. Welcome to the voices in our heads. I'm your host, Christina Marie Hutchinson. Ain't got no shows coming up because we got to stay inside again, y'all. Oops. Third wave. Worse than the all the other ones. So I hope you're staying safe. Like, restaurants are still open in New York. And I'm like, I, I mean, I want to go. If I, I, here's the thing, though. I trust the shit out of Cuomo. Thank God I have a governor that leads and does good things and gives a shit. Because the second the caseload started going up, Cuomo was like, Daddy Cuomo was like, no, 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 y'all. Go home at 10 p.m. Fuck y'all. If you got a liquor license, you go home at 10. And we're like, okay, Daddy. And then he's like, good girl. And we're like, oh, that's weird. That kind of gave me a little tingle in my underpants. And he's like, that's not appropriate. I'm married. And you're like, well, I just tingles a tingle. It's nothing to do with your wife. All right, I'm going to go. So yeah, stay inside. <laughs> um, I'm gonna do a very a celebrity edition of Fuckboy Theater. Fuckboy Theater. Um, this is a speech that um the actor uh, John Voigt gave to a, directly to camera, but then also some of it to a teleprompter. John Voigt's an actor. He's also better known as Angelina Jolie's dad. And they was estranged for a while. And then they came back together. But I feel like after John Voigt released this video, Angelina's like, yeah, I gotta go. I don't want to. You suck, man. What do you want? I didn't order nothing. Hold on. Maybe I did. Guys, just one. Just wait one second. It was Tony. He gets a pass. He's the shit. Anyway. <laughs> Fuckboy Theater, uh, John Voight's edition. Ready? This is a video he just released. My way. Oh, and it's I'm going to be accompanied by the pocket fart machine that I purchased at Urban Outfitters. Thank you very much. I am so wise with my spending. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Let me get in the zone. My fellow American. <laughs> Shut up, Kevin. My fellow Americans. I stand here disgusted with this lie. That Biden has been chosen as if we all don't know the truth. Kevin, shut up. <laughs> when one tries to deceive, we know one can't get away with it. There will be a price to pay. <laughs> this is now our greatest fight since the Civil War. Yeah, he said that. The battle of righteousness versus Satan. Yes. Satan, because these leftists are evil. 
and gassy. I added that part. Corrupt. Let us give, let us give our trust to God and fight, and fight now for Trump's victory because we all know this ballot count is corruption like they are. Let's fight this fight as if it's our last fight on earth. As this part kills me. As, as Muhammad Ali said, it's not over till the last punch you have. God bless. And scene. It's not over till the last punch you have. Motherfuckers, Muhammad Ali never said that. And if he did, it was in a drunken stupor and not meant to be quoted. What? People is nuts, y'all. Yo, I mean, if, if that ain't proof that you choose to believe whatever the fuck you want, it's a choice. I don't give a shit how deep your belief is in the universe, in God, in Jesus Christ, in Donald Trump, and John Boyd. You, you chose it. This motherfucker thinks he's... He did. He recorded a video. First of all, it looked like he was getting kidnapped in a very expensive studio. He recorded. He wrote it. What he wanted to read because he could tell he was reading from a teleprompter. And he he wrote it and then he said it in front of a camera and then he edited it. He probably didn't. Somebody else did. And then he uploaded it. Like, yeah, it's a good idea. And guess who retweeted it? Guess who retweeted it, y'all? I'll give you five guesses. They're all right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Poopy Head McGee. That's what we call him now. What? Shut the fuck up, John Voight. Shut the fuck up. But this is America, y'all. And all of our opinions matter. <laughs> oh, God. If you live in another country, good for you, honestly. <laughs> I get it. There's great things about America. But goddamn, there's a lot of crazy fucking shit, man. This is a big country we got here. Somebody messaged me on Instagram and she said, please talk about how the Native Americans in Arizona showed up to the polls at 97% to change the red state blue. And I was like, okay. And this is a excerpt from BuzzFeed News. Let's fucking give it up for the goddamn Native Americans. First of all, they were here first. And you know America loves firsts. And if we love firsts as much as we fucking say we goddamn do, then the firsts trophy goes to the goddamn Native Americans, Okay. This is a excerpt from the BuzzFeed article. This has been a catastrophic year for the Navajo Nation. The coronavirus pandemic has spread like wildfire through the sprawling reservation, infecting thousands and killing hundreds. Still, Dine, the Navajo people, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry. I really didn't look it up because I was rushing. Sorry. Voted in huge numbers this election and largely in favor of Joe Biden, helping turn Arizona, a longtime deep red state, blue. For Ali Young, a 30-year-old activist and citizen of the Navajo Nation, it is, it's been emotional to watch her community vote in force despite these challenges. Quote, I feel the only word that comes to mind is proud, she told BuzzFeed News. Thinking about the pandemic and how we've been impacted because of the decisions from our elected officials. It feels like we put our foot down and we're saying, we're going to be involved in this conversation. We're going to make sure that we have a seat at the table and that we're represented. So thank you. God damn. Thank you. Jesus Christ. John Voight's going to come to your goddamn 
Navajo meeting next and be like, you're Satan. And then I swear to God, if he does that, girl, you text me and I'll fucking come down there my goddamn self. Shut the fuck up, John Voight. Shut the fuck up. Can you imagine being Angelina Jolie right now? I mean, she got enough on her plate. But God damn it, if my dad was embarrassing me like that in front of like the whole world, I'd be like, Ugh, dad, ew. But like times 100. Okay, there's this article that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Before we get into the book, I got some other stuff to say. But <laughs> it's so funny and I know it's a visual. And I'll, don't worry, I'll put it, I'll put, you know what, I'll put, I'll put this photo in the resource section of my website and I'll also put it on my, I'll also put it um, in the, I make like a little, well, I have Emily make a little, um, collage uh with an audio clip from every podcast and I'll, I'll put this photo in the collage it's just okay so one of my favorite that one of the things i think is so fucking funny are pinterest fails like when someone tries to make a cake i've talked about this before i've had to someone like you know wants to make like this beautiful like cake of a ninja turtle for their son's birthday and they just make it themselves and it looks like goddamn shit it just looks but they tried so hard <laughs> and it looks so bad I just think it's so funny. <laughs> uh, swing and a miss, Donna. It's just so funny. Like a mom making a cake for a kid. Because that's so much hard. That's so sweet, you know? And then the cake just looks like... It just looks like... <laughs> it's so funny to me. So this article I, I came across. I don't know how I came across it. But thank Jesus, Lord, Beyonce, I did. It's on artnews.com and the title is Botched Restoration of Spanish Sculpture <laughs> Draws Scrutiny. <laughs> and the reason I talked about those Pinterest fails. <laughs> I'm looking at the picture right now. <laughs> Let me read some of the article. Following a botched restoration of a painting of the Virgin Mary in the city of Valencia earlier this year, another repair effort in Spain has become the subject of scrutiny. <laughs> Images of recent restoration job on a figurative sculpture decorating a 20th century building in the city of Palencia show significant changes to the stonework's facial features. <laughs> Guys, it's so bad. According to a report by The Guardian, the sculpture previously depicted a face of a woman smiling, and now some are saying on social media that it, that it looks like Donald Trump. <laughs> It don't look like anybody, girl. Look like Gumby. <laughs> the sculpture's original distinguishing features appear to have been altered by the restoration effort. <laughs> okay, so it's this picture of a building that's like old and shit, you know. And we, I see this kind of molding in New York City, such gorgeous architecture in New York City. And this looks like one of those really ornate buildings. So it's like this window. And you're, it's just a lot of molding, a lot of decoration. And one of the things is like there's like animals and a woman like coming out of the building, basically. Like a 3D sculpture or whatever. Well, 2D because you don't, they don't have an ass, whatever. You know what I'm saying. And there's these rams, it looks like. That's the lambs with the curly horns, right? The horny ram, the horny lambs, the rams. There's rams. And then there's a, a, per, a woman sitting in like, you know, like a Greek dress or whatever the fuck but her face <laughs> look okay so it looks like someone took play-doh put it over the face that was already there which 
it would probably look like a Roman statue. Like, a, well, it was in, where is it? In Spain, Spanish statue. But a sculpture. Sculpture you would see at the Met of a person. So someone took <laughs> and they took silly buddy and they 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 smoothed out any facial features of the face and they just stuck they took their big thumb no yeah so one of the eye holes looks like someone took their thumb and put it at the top of the forehead like it's the third eye or like the person looks like that guy from the Goonies like hey you guys that guy sloth from the Goonies. It looks like that. So one of the eyes. And then the other hole for the eye. <laughs> looks like the guy took his dick out. And mushroom stamped a little down into the left. For another eye. It's bigger than the other eye. <laughs> and there's a little ball for a nose. It looks like a kid did this. <laughs> it's so funny. So I just wanted to share that visual with you. It's so funny. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Before I talk about, oh man, I had like, I've been having like good New York nights. I think that's because, um, it's safe and with a mask. Okay. I think it's because, uh, shit's getting real again. You know, in New York, it's not terrible. Cause let me tell you at the beginning of quarantine, we had it the worst. We win that first place trophy for worst quarantine at the top. Well, in terms of major city, you know what? I, I'm not going to say that because I'm not, I don't mean to take anything away from somebody else who's in a place that fucking sucked too. So all I'm saying is there was a truck parked outside your girl's apartment. Do I live on the first floor? Yes. Okay. So I see all the cars parked on the street. There was a giant refrigerator truck for the goddamn dead bodies parked outside. And I was like, oh, that's cute. I'm never going to be horny again. But I figured it out. <coughs> shit that wasn't COVID shit um but I had a, I had two shows in one night they were both outside everybody wore masks except when we were on the mic but they were, we were far away from the performers you're a fucking go if comedy clubs are open I you can trust that the governor and the mayor no one likes him but you know the governor at least daddy Cuomo grr, mm, yeah uh daddy Cuomo got us okay so if they are having comedy shows you can go and i promise you if you go to ones at new york comedy club or at the comedy cellar because i've been to both i didn't perform at the comedy cellar yet because i have an audition because i'm too scared because david tells says i put that place on a pedestal and he's right and it's like i gotta get over it but i can't audition now because it's covid anyway those two venues i guarantee have safe safe shows okay cellar is inside so you gotta reserve your tickets online but the comedians are actually in a glass case. It's kind of, and they each have different, I was like, this is the safest shit I've seen all goddamn COVID. And then in New York Comedy Club, the shows are outdoors, but they got heat lamps and the beautiful views. Ah, anyway, so I had two shows. One at one location in New York Comedy Club. The second show was at the other location that New York Comedy Club is doing. And fucking thank you so much to every single person who has seen a comedy show. Uh, hopefully these circum, you know, everyone's being as safe as you, as you can. And if you live with someone who's immune compromised, or an old person, maybe it's not the best to be going out to shows, you know? Or like quarantine in your goddamn room until you get COVID tests, whatever. You, you, you gotta take the safe precautions. But thank you for keeping live comedy, supporting live comedy, keeping it as alive as we can at this time. Corinne and I canceled our Oklahoma weekend this coming weekend because we're like, well, that's, no, that's, I looked up the COVID cases. I was like, Google, hey, Google, what's the COVID like in Oklahoma City? And they're like, yeah, you just stay home. And I was like, okay. Um, but also too, like getting on a plane and flying, I just, I don't, it's too bad. So, but in New York, 
it's, you know, the positivity rate is, I think, at 2%, which is, that's not good. But Daddy Cuomo, he, he puts in those rules and regulations the second it goes up. So we all shut the fuck up, stay inside, or whatever we got to do. My point is, if we're allowed to do comedy shows and, the, like, these venues that I mentioned, um, you know, are complying with what our leaders are telling us. Daddy Cuomo, that is. Not, you know, not that guy. I wish this fart machine was more realistic. I mean, it was only like $4. So I don't expect, you know, I don't expect. It's just, I make better fart sounds, but it's like, it's so convenient because then I could add in the sound effects by pressing the goddamn button. So the other night, I uh, I did two spots. I was, I hadn't had two spots since pre-quarantine. I, was, I felt like an actual New York comic. I was doing fucking three spots a night, man. But now COVID hit and it was like, pfft. so I had two. And then I was walking home from the second spot, which is by, um, by Hudson Yards, it's in Manhattan. It's a West 30s, West, West, West. And I heard from other comics like, don't, you know, you don't want to walk around there late at night because this gets weird. And I was like, well, okay, well, I will see about that. And then I was like, I'm going to walk home, but I'm not going to have my headphones on because my friend said it gets a little weird and I do have my mace in my pocket and I do have my hand hovered over the call button after pre-dialing 911. Just a case, just a case, just a case. And then I got scared actually for like one block and I was like, oh, they were right. I probably should get Uber. But I was like in the middle of the tunnels and the road, the highways going into the one of the tunnels. And I was like, I can't call an Uber to this tunnel. All right, I'm just going to go. So I was walking around with my finger hovered over the call button with 911. Just in case. No headphones on. Just in case. The last time I had my finger my thumb hovering over the call button with 911 pre-dialed is when Corinne and I were on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike at two in the morning with a blown tire and the mechanic that the state of New Jersey sent us on the highway in the middle of the night, freezing cold. I know I already told the story, I don't care, I'm gonna repeat it again because it's just crazy. He had one hand, he came to change our tire. The state of New Jersey sent him to come to change our tire. One of his hands didn't have no fingers on it. And I was like, okay, well, wow, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> Weird shit happens to me, guys, as you could tell. Just funny fucking weird ass weird shit. And yeah, his hand didn't have anything. So it caused him great difficulty while trying to change the tire. And I kept offering him help because I, in fact, know how to change a tire. I've done it on the side of the highway before. But I looked at the spare tire and I couldn't find a jack. And you can't take the bolts of the tire off without a jack, motherfucker. So I need that guy's help. But I knew how to change a tire. So I was like, hey. Just, I'll do it. And he kept getting so mad. And he was like banging the jack against the ground because he couldn't get it with one hand. And I was like, oh man, just let me help you, you fucking asshole. Come on. But he got so mad when I asked if he needed help. And I was like, message received, sir, loud and clear. I ran back into the car, had my finger hovered over the call button with 911 pre-dialed. So that was the other t- only other time I've done that. And I was like, well, I haven't done that in a while. And then I, the, my rest of my walk home was wonderful. Uh, I was walking by Macy's. It was at night. And there was this, I was walking by this group of impassioned black men wearing Jewish stuff. Like a, like the guy, one of the guys, they were all black guys. They had a, one had a hat um, that had the Star of David on it. And they were just, and they were having like a back and forth, a conversation. 
one of the guys was asking a question and he was trying to like understand where the other guy was coming from because I think that guy was a Christian. And I thought it was, I was, I fucking love New York so much and I, I crave these New York moments, especially now because I, because it's not a lot of people are out. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. A group of men having an impassioned discussion about their faith. I thought that was beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. And also, I just learned I'm Jewish. So let me learn a little bit about my culture or something. And so, and, and, and then the guy was reading a verse from the Torah, his sidekick guy next to the guy with the, with the hat, the Jewish hat. It wasn't, um, it wasn't one of those little hats that cover your bald spot. It was one of those, it was a big hat. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know the words yet, but I was listening because I just thought it was nice. I was like, how nice is this? That a group of grown men are outside talking about things that matter to them and they're having it back and forth. I could tell one of the guys was disagreeing, but he was trying to understand. And I was like, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. Also, what 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 say you about Jews? Because I don't know nothing. And so there was this, like I said, this one of the men I, I believe was Christian. I don't know what he was, but he was he was questioning the guy with the Jewish hat on. A bunch of them had Jewish hats, but the one that was like the main guy. Um, and he was trying to understand what the Jewish guy was saying, and he asked a question. And the Jewish man go, and I couldn't hear what the question was, because the Jewish guy that was like giving like a not a sermon that's another religion you girl you guys you know i don't know my shit so you know what i'm fucking saying but the guy the main guy talking with the jewish hat was talking loudly and like like a pastor would like you know and he was he he spoke very well like he had he made his words very exciting i've always wanted to go to a black church but i can't you know i'm white i'm not gonna do that but like ugh, they just it just seems so much more fun than white church or temple you know this guy was a beautiful speaker he kind of, he reminded me of a stand-up comedian the way he was talking and the way he was putting flavor into his words and life into all of these words i really loved it so this one guy was like well what was asking a question and then the the main guy was like the main guy goes it's like if a white girl and then he looked at me or he was like looking around he was looking around for he goes it's like if a white girl and then they were looking around for a white girl and I was the only white girl around. And I was like, uh-oh, their eyes are gonna land on me, huh? I gotta be the, all right, that's cool. Hey, you know what? White girls, they don't have good track record and a lot, a lot of them are not very kind. So I'll be, sure. And then he started looking around. So he's looking around, he, he locked eyes with me and I was like, oh man. And then he points to me and then he goes, it's like if that lady, and I was like, oh, fuck, here we go. What do you say? And then he ducked down into this huddle and whispered so I couldn't hear it. And I was like, excuse me, can I be in on this or no? Is that okay? Because I was, you know, they saw me, you know, hanging out. There's a group, group of people around them just hearing what they had to say. They were on the streets. It's like if that white, it's like if that lady, and I was like, oh, fuck, God damn it. Okay, no, nah, it's cool. It's cool, guys. I'm, I'm a, it's all right. You don't, it's full, it's cool. I'm not gonna, just, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and I walked closer to them and I like was inching closer and they kept, the guy was like ducking down further behind these people so I couldn't see him. I couldn't hear what he was saying. And I was like, guys, I don't care. I was just kind of curious if you're gonna involve me in conversation. Can I, can I be, can I listen to it? I walked up closer and I was like, it's as if that lady, what? Come on, you can tell me. I know my people kind of suck and you're right, but I want to listen and improve. I'm one of the ones that wants to improve. I'm not going to deny your experience. 
but it's okay if you think I will because you're safer to assume that so that you don't get hurt. I'm sorry. And I just kept inching closer and closer to these men. And they were looking at me like, get the fuck out of here, lady. I'm like, well, it's a free country. And then I was like, I don't want to be that girl, that white girl. I was, and I was just like, all right, I really tried to get really close to them and hear what they were saying, but <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> I was like, that's okay. Maybe if you didn't want uh, me to hear it, though, you say it inside or something, but I get it. Now it's cool. COVID, you know, whatever. Thank you for your passion. <laughs> ah, this is so funny. This shit's so fucking funny. All right. Okay, guys, let's read. I sent some people books. I think I got it for six people. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to just do one more than I said and disrespect my fucking boundaries. No, I think I got it for five. Anyway, if you live in Canada and I got it for you, it's coming. But if you don't live in Canada, if you live in America and I got it for you, it should already be there by now. So check your goddamn mailboxes, bitches. And send me letters. Oh, also, if you've written me a letter to my P.O. box, I have it. I got, there was a point where I got so overwhelmed because these letters were so sweet and complimentary and, and deep and, and, and passionate and just, and I just felt like, it's not like I felt like I didn't deserve all these nice words, but I just got overwhelmed. So I'm going to be, I will write you back at some point. It might be a while, but I promise you, I promise you, I will, I will read your letter. So please, please know that. Because if I wrote a letter to somebody who wanted to receive letters and be pen pals, I'd be like, bitch, why didn't I hear back from you? But then one of the letters was like, please don't think you owe me a response. Like, it's totally okay. I just wanted to write to you. And I was like, oh, thank you, girl, for letting me off the hook. Oh, my God. And I was like, you know what? I can do that my goddamn self. I have a good heart and I mean well, but sometimes I get overwhelmed. So, okay, let's read um, some th some words by Dr. David D. Burns from his book, Feeling Great, The Revolutionary New Treatment for Depression and Anxiety. God, this book is going to be, this. you guys are going to love this one. And I need it too. So let's get better, bitches. This chapter three is called, Why Do We Get Stuck in Bad Moods, Relationship Conflicts, or Habits and Addictions? How Can We Get Unstuck? Well, that's a goddamn great question, Mr. Burns. Daddy Burns. Daddy David. Let's call you Daddy David. No, I like Daddy Burns better. Okay. Nearly everyone gets down at times. And most of the time, we can pop out of a bad mood fairly quickly. Sometimes, though, bad moods and habits can be incredibly intense and persistent. You don't say, Daddy Burns. One man I recently met told me that he's never had one happy minute in his entire life. I mean, I think he's been a little dramatic, but. He said he's struggled with feelings of self-hatred, worthlessness, and anger every minute of every day since childhood. I mean, taking a shit feels good. Surely he had a little relief taking a shit. Many experts since Freud have tried to explain why some people have so much trouble overcoming depression and anxiety in spite of therapists' best efforts to help. Freud called this problem resistance because he thought many of his patients subconsciously resisted his efforts to help them. If you don't like that term resistance, we can call it stuckness. I will, I'll tell you, I like the term resistance because when I read that part, it reminded me exactly of a time where I sat in my therapist's office and I happened to have been having a panic attack all day, like an anger panic attack. And I was glad that I was having it because I was like, you see what, you see what I do, doc? Fix it. <laughs> Only you can fix yourself, y'all. But I remember her trying to calm me down. And then I just shouted at her like a kid. I was like, I don't want to calm down. And she's like, oh, interesting. I'm like, yeah, it's fucking interesting. I, I, didn't, I don't curse at her. But I didn't want to calm down. And I was like, why the fuck don't I want to calm down? And this 
this fucking chapter, y'all, will tell you why. Because a lot of people resist it. We all know that motherfucker who just loves to complain. Complaining is his or her masturbating or coming. When they complain, they're like, oh, yeah. And then Barbara, she's such a bitch. Like, just you, people, some people love to complain. I fucking hate that. That being said, I'm sure I have been stuck in, in moods where I love to complain. The point is, we've all resisted being better people. Okay, so give yourself a pat on your back for not killing yourself and for, for not killing yourself because seriously, it's really hard. Either way, the question is still the same. Why do we sometimes get stuck in bad moods, conflicts, conflicts and habits? And is it possible to get unstuck quickly without having to spend years free associating on an analyst's couch? Well, I fucking hope the answer is yes, David. Jesus Christ. In my work as a psychiatrist. Oh, I thought he was a therapist. I didn't know he was a psychiatrist. Oh, Daddy David's doing some pills, maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. I've seen many people who seem to resist recovery. Early in my career, I treated a pharmacist with depression named Melinda, who constantly complained about her life, her friends, the men she was dating. She said they were losers, but didn't seem interested in using any of the tools I developed to overcome her depression or improve her relationships. And she never did any of the psychotherapy homework I assigned. That bitch. At the time, it almost seemed like she was more interested in complaining than in recovery. Yeah, I know some people like that. This was frustrating and puzzling since I liked Melinda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did there, David. And was convinced the tools I developed would help if she'd just give them a try. Her resistance was painful to witness because she was a beautiful person mm -hmm, who had much to offer, like her pussy to you. I'm putting words in his mouth, guys. One day I emphasized that completing psychotherapy homework between sessions would be crucial if she wanted to change her life. Melinda bristled and told me if I ever again asked her to do any goddamn psychotherapy homework, she'd commit suicide. All right, Melinda, relax. This is why I'm not a therapist. And she emphasized that she knew exactly how to get the job done. Oh, God. She explained her body would be found in the pharmacist where she worked with a copy of my book, Feeling Good. Well, she hadn't read Feeling Great yet. Maybe that was a problem. <laughs> Feeling Good on her chest and a post-it note attached that read, He was my shrink. Well, Melinda, I feel like the problem's maybe you, bitch. See, again, this is why I'm not a therapist because I have a low tolerance for people complaining about shit they can control. But... This is a good book because it's showing us why we get stuck, bitch. Um, and then he said, it terrified me. So I pulled this and he, he was like, what the fuck? And then he had a dream. This because this section is called a strange dream. One night I woke up from a particularly vivid dream. In the dream, I saw a table that listed two most common causes of therapeutic resistance, outcome resistance and process resistance. For each of these four targets, Depression, anxiety, relationship problems, ugh, habits and addictions. Oh, God, all those. Outcome resistance means that you have mixed or negative feelings about recovery. For example, if you're depressed, you may fight any person or therapist who tries to help you get better. In other words, you don't seem to want a good outcome and may cling to the depression. And I know so many people who do that, including myself. What the fuck, Daddy Burns? Help me. Process resistance means that although you may want to recover, yeah, there is something you'll have to do, but don't want to do. No, I don't want to do it to recover. For example, oh God, if you're anxious, I'm always anxious. 
You may not want to face your fears because it seems so terrifying. Well, that's very accurate. Thank you for seeing and hearing me, Daddy Burns. Or if you're depressed, that too. You may not want to do psychotherapy homework between sessions. Well, no shit. That's what depression means. I want to do psychotherapy homework. So we're going to look into the kinds of uh, what resistance looks like in depression, what it looks like with anxiety, what resistance looks like with relationship problems. Ooh, the willies. And with habits and addictions. Okay. Let's learn class, shall we? And again, I'm, I'm skipping. I'm only reading chunks of this. Okay. So if you want to buy the book, do it. But I set my limit at five, and I'm pretty sure I only did, bought six, so that's not bad, okay? All right, let's talk about depression stuckness, which is like the definition of depression. When it comes to depression, why do we get stuck? It's because recovery from depression requires accepting something about ourselves or the world that we may not want to accept. Ouch, that hurts. That feels personal. As the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, we suffer because we tell ourselves we need certain things to feel happy and fulfilled. Can you imagine if like the Buddha got like called out? Like we discovered like evidence years later that like that bitch had a fucking flat screen before electricity was even a thing. Like and he had all these trinkets and then he was going outside of his home that no one else was allowed into. And he's like, guys, we don't need things, okay? <laughs> no, he didn't do that. Telling yourself that you need something to feel happy and fulfilled Oh, this, is, this hurts. This is so true. I'm going to repeat that. Telling yourself that you need something to feel happy and fulfilled is a lot like being in a hypnotic trance. That's because you're buying into the message that's actually not true. Well, what if it is? God damn it. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with wanting certain things in life like a baby, a loving partner, money, success, or friends. Well, that's good news. However, and this is the important part. However, when you elevate a want... To a need, you set yourself up for depression. I repeat, when you elevate a want to a need, you set yourself up for depression, Christina. I know. Fuck off. Many of us, perhaps all of us, a lot of us, have deep-rooted stories about who we are or who we think we should be, and those stories may stand in the way of our happiness. Goddamn. Let me just repeat that a third goddamn time. When you elevate a want to a need because when you're doing that you're basically saying i need this to be happy or i need this to live or i need this to you set yourself up to depression for depression you don't want water you need water bitch and maybe it's disguised as a want so that that's the way the good lord beyonce made you so that you drink some goddamn water when people are when they have a baby and they think the baby's the cutest thing ever apparently that's so we don't kill our babies so it's like, you know, just fucking relax and get hydrated. God, there's so many things that I want that I say I need, especially with career stuff. And I'm like, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be really fucking angry and sad. And then I, and then when it doesn't happen, I'm really fucking angry and sad. I'm like, well, God damn it. How did I get here? It's not that big of a mystery, kids. It's you. The problem is you. But when we say the problem, when I say the problem is you, and, and when he says it too, it all that means is, where can I take responsibility for the shit life I lead? <laughs> you know, if more people ask themselves that, we wouldn't have John Voight telling us to fucking armor up. Fuck off, John Voight. Traditionally, therapists have viewed patient resistance as stemming from something negative about the patient. <laughs> well, you shouldn't be a therapist. For example, some therapists believe patients cling to depression because they like to complain, like Melinda. 
or because they want to get attention, so-called secondary gain. Some also think resistant patients are afraid of change or want to indulge in self-pity. Well, sometimes, yeah. The problem with these formulations is that they pathologize the patient. They are negative and disempowering, and they cast the patient in a bad light like a whining child. Even more important, they aren't helpful. That's true, because if your therapist don't like you, you got to get another therapist. Because it does, they don't have to like you as a person, but they need to create a safe environment, especially if you're dealing with trauma. But like even anxiety and depression, if they don't create a safe environment, you're going to have your guard up whether you know it or not. So if your therapist doesn't like you and they show it, they're not a good therapist. You got to just get another therapist. It's like dating, guys. When people say, I tried a therapy, but the therapist sucked. That's like saying, well, I want to get married and have a family, but I went on one Tinder date and he was picking his asshole the whole time. Well, that was one asshole picking guy. They're not all going to pick their assholes. Got my commentary. I, I love it. I hope you do too. Why would anyone resist doing psychotherapy homework? Well, I can name a couple reasons. There are lots of reasons, but the bottom line is that it involves work. It is totally understandable that some people like Melinda, <laughs> like Melinda, <laughs> may just want to come to therapy to vent and get support. Having support is important. But if you want to recover, you need to roll up your sleeves and do a little psychotherapy homework too. If you've been struggling with feelings of depression, self-doubt, or inferiority, here's my question. Are you willing to pay the price of change by doing some written exercises while you read? Well, that's for while you read the book. You got to have the book to do these written exercises. But let me, I'll, just, I'll give you the gist, guys. How much is recovery, feelings of joy, self-esteem, and greater intimacy worth to you? Hear that pause? Do you get uncomfortable? That's because you don't want to face yourself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, now let's talk about getting stuck with anxiety. Anxiety resistance or stuckness is totally different from repression uh, resistance. I love the way he explained this because it honestly made me feel so much better about anxiety. Because I would say I struggle from anxiety more than depression. But it's a lot of anxiety because I took the anxiety quiz and I was like, yeah, you girl anxious. <laughs> I'm not depressed, but you girl anxious. At the moment, I'm not depressed. I'll be depressed one day. Don't worry. For anxiety... Resistance always results from something called magical thinking. This is the idea that although your anxiety may be painful, you subconsciously believe it protects you or your loved ones from something even worse. You might think about it like this. Anxiety is the price you pay to be safe, to motivate yourself, or to perform at your best. And this is one, oh God, I love the example that he gives because it reminds me of my mom who gets anxiety. And I know a lot of, I had a lot of friends who get like anxiety to the point where they're mean to me because they like, because if I do something that they think is unsafe, they get mad. But it is rooted in them caring for you. But also at the same time, girl, you got to get a hold of that shit, okay? Not my problem. I don't want to deal with your fear of my death. I got to deal with my fear of my life, okay? There are many common types of anxiety, such as chronic worrying, shyness i didn't know that was a type of anxiety shyness huh public speaking anxiety i don't got that <laughs> test or performance anxiety panic attacks oh, i got those specific phobias fear this is fear of heights animals storms flying snakes spiders storms who's afraid of storms i am kind of actually agoraphobia agoraphobia or the fear of leaving home alone Obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. We all mostly got that one, huh? And hypochondria. Hypochondria. That's what it says. One of the most powerful discoveries I've made is that you 
Your negative feelings always say something really good, even great, about you. And they will nearly always help you in important ways too. Well, I'm, list- I'm interested in that, Doc. Tell me more. Here's an example. A woman named Fran worried all day long. She worried about her children, her husband, her career. In particular, she constantly worried that her kids would be killed in a drunk driving accident despite the fact that they seemed to be very responsible teenagers. That's the other thing. When my mom gets anxiety about me, I'm like, do you not think I'm a capable goddamn adult because I'm 32, okay? TikTok, motherfucker. I know I'm 32. She was also worried about her husband's health even though he was in excellent physical shape and had recently completed his first half marathon. Well, good for him. Finally, she was anxious about her work as a real estate broker and constantly worried that she might offend a customer or lose her job. Hope hope she's doing okay in COVID. In spite of the fact that her sales were excellent and the feedback from customers was always stellar. Now let's imagine we have another magic button. If Fran pushes it, she'll be suddenly cured. Her worrying will instantly vanish and no effort at all, with no effort at all, and she'll walk out of today's therapy session feeling happy, peaceful, and optimistic about her future. Will she press the magic button? And I say, hell no. Hell no. I got anxiety, bitch. I know what that's like. Hell no. You ain't got to press no button to make it go away. Because when you calm down, bad things happen. (laughs) That's what I said to myself as a kid. So here's what I think from Daddy Burns. Fran may initially say that she does want to press the magic button, but upon some reflection, she is likely to change her mind because she subconsciously believes her worrying keeps her children and husband safe. She also believes anxiety is the price she must pay for a terrific performance in her career. Oh, I'm guilty of that shit. Ugh, we get it. Something's on fire. God. Just kidding. And it seems to be working. Her children and husband are safe and doing well, and she's doing great at work. That's the other thing. If you're anxious, you have a fear about some, like anxiety specifically, about a loved one's safety. It, it, sometimes I'll get pissed. This, this section really helped me because sometimes I'll get pissed that a parent or my good friend is so worried about me. And then I, you know, I realize like, well, I am safe and they might believe that their worrying helps me maintain my safeness. Even though it's because I'm a grown ass woman and I'm goddamn 32. TikTok motherfucker. I know my womb is aching. Fran's anxiety, um, uh, in her have, okay. So for Fran's anxiety, her symptoms, as well as her resistance to change, results from something positive, awesome, and beautiful about Fran. Isn't that cool? Well, yeah, but explain that to me. Fran's worrying also clearly results from her love for her family and her desire to do best at work. Therefore, if she resists a therapist or friend who encourages her to stop worrying, it's because she wants to honor her core values, that's a good point, and protect her family, not because of some kind of stubbornness or secondary gain. Now, that is a good goddamn point. But it still don't mean that mom's anxiety don't affect me. Okay? Um... Overcoming any type of anxiety requires confronting the very thing you fear the most. Oh, don't I goddamn know that. You have to expose yourself to whatever it is that you fear. The process is extremely frightening. No shit. And nearly all of us have the powerful urge to avoid intense feelings of fear. Yeah, you might say. This avoidance is powerful and instantaneous because it's the way our brains are built. Survival, guys. We are hardwired to avoid anything that feels incredibly dangerous as it protects us from harm. 
unless you're a child of trauma and you just you run out of airplanes to feel you just bungee jump to feel something in spite of the fact that exposure techniques are incredibly effective only about 25 to 30 percent of mental health professionals use these techniques to treat anxiety disorders this is mind-blowing since exposure is the single most validated psychotherapy technique in the world well daddy david said it here first why do therapists as well as their patients resist exposure I think it's because of a phenomenon I call reverse hypnosis. We all know some mental health professionals use hypnosis as a treatment tool. Oh, I want to get hypnotized. But you may not realize that patients can also hypnotize their therapists. Oh, do tell me more. In this case, patients with anxiety may persuade their therapists that they are too fragile for exposure and that something terrible will happen if they have to confront their fears. Well, I mean, everyone's going to say that. Many therapists buy right into that so they don't use exposure. They mistake, uh, this mistake can doom the therapy to failure. So guys, if you're in therapy and you're trying to do, and you're, you got anxiety about something and your therapist is like, you should face it. And you're like, no, I can't, I'm too fragile. And your therapist is like, oh, okay. You might gotta get a new therapist. Oh, this one hurts. Oh man, okay. Now let's talk about relationship problem stuckness. Ugh, God. All right, fine. I got walls up, y'all. <laughs> we all know someone we might we may find annoying, someone we don't like very much, or someone we love but just can't seem to stop arguing or fighting with. What's this resistance all about? Most people are convinced that human beings want loving, rewarding relationships with others. But is that really true? Let's find out. Oh, so interesting. I want you to think about someone you really don't like or get along with now or at any time in your life. Think about someone you resent. Do you have someone in mind? Yes. Good. So do I. Well, it's good for you. Now picture that per uh, what that person does that really turns you off. Maybe he or she refuses to open up and share feelings, won't even talk to you. Yep. Pouts and slam doors all, all the whilst, all the while insisting he or she isn't angry. Oh, that's fucked up gets defensive and never listens, argues and always has to be right, complains and whines about all and but always ignores your good advice, is stubborn or controlling, always has to get his or her way or their way, constantly brags, boasts, and acts superior. Ugh, I hate that. Is relentlessly critical, critical of you. I hate that shit too. Ugh. Makes demands but rarely think, uh, thanks you or gives you anything in return, is hostile and mean-spirited, lacks compassion or warmth. Once you can picture that person in your mind's eye, imagine that the magic button is in front of you again. If you press it, the person who you deeply resent will suddenly become your best friend in the whole world with no effort whatsoever. Will you press the button? <laughs> Not really, Doc. No, I won't. And then he goes on to say, no, you don't want to press the dang button this time? I'm not surprised. That's what more than 95% of people tell me. When I ask this question in my workshops, there's a lot of nervous laughter and a very few people raise their hands. It seems like almost no one wants to press the magic button. And then I tell the audience, I just offered you a choice between a hostile, troubled, abusive relationship and a loving, joyous one. What did you choose? Again, with laughter, they admit that they chose the hostile, troubled, abusive relationship. Well, I mean, also that's not taken into account that you just walk away from someone who sucks. Anyway. And that's why we resist solving relationship problems because we usually have mixed feelings or even strong negative feelings about getting close to that person we're not getting along with. 
I'm not saying this type of relationship resistance is necessarily wrong either. Thank you. Sometimes it may be wise to keep our distance from certain individuals. And there's no rule that says we have to get along with everybody. All I'm saying is, humans often do not want loving, peaceful, joyous relationships. And y'all, that's a hard pill to swallow. But that's goddamn true. Even in cases where, you know, if somebody describes, you know, if, if it's very clear that, you know, if your boyfriend's physically abusive, that's not what love is, okay? That might be what you were told. That might be what you believe at the time. It's not what love is. Love is not physical abuse. No matter what anybody tells you, love is not physical abuse. But sometimes, but people stay in those relationships. They do. And it will be of no service or use to anyone to go, why are you doing that? Okay? But that's a really extreme example. But a lot of times people are fighting with somebody and they just want to be fighting with someone. I'm like, guys, read a goddamn book or something. Jesus. Get a dog. You don't even have to look abroad to see this apparent addiction to conflict and hostility. Oh, boy. He, he didn't know about Trump when he wrote this. We can look right here at home and watch the increasingly acrimonious and disturbing political battles between conservatives and liberals. Yeah, John Voight. Now let's assume that you do want a better relationship with someone you're not getting along with. It could be a family member. All right, maybe. Friend or a colleague. What's one thing you're going to have to do that you probably don't want to do to get close to that person? Oh, God, I don't want to think about that, Daddy Burns. Think about the person you aren't getting along with again and answer this question from your heart of hearts. Ugh, okay. Who, in your opinion, is more to blame for the conflict? You or the other person? And in your opinion, who is the bigger jerk? <laughs> you or the other person? Tell me how you really feel. I mean, I feel like they're the jerk, honestly, Daddy Burns. I'm not interested in the politically correct answer. At my workshops, the vast majority say the other person. Well, it is the other person's fault. Only a few times do they say they blame. They are to blame. And it's not surprising. Blame is intensely addictive. Oh, that hurt. But sometimes, but see, don't let that fool you, though. Because if you're getting treated like shit, I mean, actually, yeah, I guess if you're in a relationship where you're getting treated like shit and you just sit there and blame them, then you don't actually want to get out of the relationship. You just want to be treated like shit. And I wanted to be treated like shit for a while, even though I didn't even realize that. But now I don't want to be treated like shit. And that's called growth. It's not, uh, okay, it's not surprising. Blame is intensely addictive. It makes you feel morally superior, and it makes you feel justified in telling your friends about what a loser or creep the other person is. Well, I mean, yeah, duh, it's fun. But when you blame others for your relationship problems, yeah. The likelihood of recovery is zero. Bum, bum, bum. Uh. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, I'm not aware of any techniques powerful enough to help people who blame others for the problems in their relationships. What well, sucks? So if you want to get close to someone you're fighting with, you're going to have to do three things. One, you'll have to stop blaming him or her or them for the problem. Okay, I mean, just entertain it, guys. Even if they did something so overtly their fault, just entertain it. Entertain the idea of not blaming them anymore. Number two, you'll have to pinpoint your own role in the problem. Because, girl, if you come up to me and say every single one of my boyfriends is a piece of shit, I go, well, God damn it, girl, who the common denominator? It's your ass. Okay? 
That's not to shame you. Shame does no one any good ever. But taking responsibility for yourself being the common denominator and all these pieces of shit guys you dated, maybe that'll help you. Get closer to you. Uh, Number three, you'll have to focus all your efforts on changing yourself rather than trying to change the other person. But I love changing other people though. Doesn't matter. Okay. Oops, I accidentally hit my fart machine. Um, Oh, the law of opposites. Okay, this is so good. When you defend yourself from criticism that is wrong, unfair, or false, you prove that the criticism is absolutely valid and the critic becomes even more convinced that the criticism is valid and justified. God damn it, I wish I fucking read this fucking part of the book before I got dragged on the internet all those times. Like, it's so defensive. And it's true. I got dragged on the internet for shit. And it's like, you try to explain yourself, but when you try to explain yourself, especially on Twitter or Instagram comments, you lose, bitch. You lose. Because that person who criticized you, that person who doesn't even fucking know you, doesn't even want to get to fucking know you, they're just pissed about whatever the fuck you said, they're going to take you defending yourself as bait and just jerk off all into it and then eat it. And then be happy. And then you're going to be sad-faced. In contrast, when you find the truth in a criticism that sounds completely unfair, exaggerated, or wrong, you immediately put the lie to rest and the critic no longer believes the criticism. Well, isn't that a magic bean pill? This is also a paradox. I mean, yeah. Wait, that's interesting. In con- when you find the truth... In a criticism. That's true, though. That's how you disarm. Because when I worked at Apple and they taught us like the three A's of customer service, acknowledge, align, assure, the align part is what made even the angriest celebrity in Manhattan whose computer was not working calm the fuck down and be able to talk to me like a human being. Because they would say something like, my, my iPhone, oh, okay, so I see your iPhone's not working. If my iPhone wasn't working, I'd be really fucking mad. Well, I don't say fuck. When I worked in the corporate world, but now I can say whatever the fuck I want. But like, that's a good finding truth, even if the criticism is crazy. Can you imagine if somebody came up to me or someone said, even on the Internet, even the turds on the Internet, someone was like, Christina, you're the biggest piece of shit I've ever smelled. And I was like, yeah, maybe I am. They're not going to their wind. The wind is going to go out of their sails because then they got nothing. Ha ha, suck my dick. If used skillfully, the disarm, this disarming technique can be incredibly effective, but it can be painful to use if you're convinced that the criticism simply isn't true. Oh yeah, so you gotta let that go. It is not easy to stop blaming the other person so you can focus on your own role in a problem. Well, that, that the understatement of the goddamn year. But if you're willing to let go, your ego die, the reward can be tremendous. Well, that's nice. Now let's talk about habits and addiction stuckness. Do you have some kind of habit or addiction that's been bugging you? Maybe. Most of us do. Well, that's good. That makes you feel better. It could be overeating, smoking. Yes, probably that one. Drinking too much or using too much pot. <laughs> pot. Bitch, it's weed, motherfucker. Smoking a goddamn J with Keef and Shatter. Or it could be procrastination. Oh, I got that too. Excessive internet cruising. <laughs> this is written. I don't know when this is written, but Daddy Burns got to get his vernacular up. Or too much cell phone use. Yeah, you're right. In, an, uh, in a nutshell, we resist giving up our favorite habits and addictions. 
We want to feel good. We want our highs. As little or big as they are, guys, we want our highs. That's why we don't want to give it up, okay? We don't want to give up our fucking highs. Do I have... Uh, Oh, you know what? Let me read this. Let me read. Let me read this section because I feel like so many people, uh, so many people, so many people. Oh, wait. Am I going to read that part? Hold on. Just give me a second. I'm figuring it out. Where's that part about the other thing I didn't read? Oh, wait. Shit. I got to go back. You guys, I got to go back. This is a really interesting. Um, just back one thing. Back to uh, the depression. This is a really intense example. And I want to read this. I didn't highlight it because it was so many goddamn words. But I'm going to read this first. Then we'll go back to addictions, okay? We're learning. We're growing. We're learning to figure out to write notes in the margins so that we don't forget to read the parts. Okay. So after I read those three steps, if you want to get close to someone you're fighting with, you have to stop blaming him or her for the problem. You'll have to pinpoint your own role in the problem. And you'll have to focus all your efforts on changing yourself rather than trying to change the other person. The author gives such a great example of this. Okay. Those three steps can be very painful. It's no big surprise that most people resist them. It can be shocking, even humiliating to have to look at ourselves and pinpoint what we're doing that provokes and fuels the conflict. It's really hard to let go of the belief that the other person is to blame. Yeah. But pinpointing our own role in the problem can be liberating and incredibly rewarding because it opens the door to intimacy and trust. Okay, I'm interested. I'm listening. To do so, though, you need to follow. You need to allow for the death of your pride and let go of your ego. <sighs> I often have to overcome my ego in resolving relationship conflicts. For example, I once treated a woman named Delisha who had been struggling with severe depression all her life. When she was growing up in New Zealand, she was a victim of incest from her older brothers and sexual abuse from her uncle. Although Alicia told her parents what was going on, they didn't believe her. After a couple of months, her uncle moved to Sydney, but the abuse from her brothers continued. She felt depressed, humiliated, and enraged. Alicia initially didn't make much progress in therapy. She seemed to blame everyone else, including me, for the problems in her life. I don't think I ever worked harder for any patient or gave more of myself, but no matter what I did or said, it was never enough. One day during a session, Alicia looked at me in the eye and said, quote, you know, Dr. Burns, this therapy is worse than the incest and abuse I endured as a child. I couldn't believe my ears. I was outraged. Her comments sounded incredibly ungrateful and mean-spirited. Unfortunately, uh, excuse me, fortunately, I bit my tongue and managed to hang on to the end of the session without saying much. That weekend, I was jogging on a local trail and thinking about Alicia, trying to figure out how I could respond to her. I strongly believe in the importance of finding truth in criticism. But I was stumped and angry, and I couldn't see how there could possibly be any truth in what she had said. Why had she said something so mean-spirited when I'd been trying so hard to help? What could I possibly say? Someone didn't read Don Miguel Ruiz's Four Agreements. Don't take it personally, bitch. But no, I get you, you can get why he was pissed. And you could get why she fucking said that. Anyway, continuing. Out of the blue, it suddenly hit me like lightning. And I was pretty sure I understood what Alicia had been trying to tell me. I realized she might have felt like I had been exploiting her, trying to get her to use my techniques to satisfy myself rather than really listening to her feelings of mistrust, hurt, and anger. In other words, I wasn't providing the support, warmth, and safety she desperately needed. In a way, it was really like the incest and abuse she'd endured as, as a child, since she was once again getting used, only this time the enemy was me. 
As her therapist, I had not really listened and found her emotional truth. I'd only heard her words that sounded wrong and unfair. But she was right. I had not heard her story or engaged her on a deep level that led to trust. During our next session, I explained that my realization to I explained my realization to Alicia. I told her how painful it was for me to see that I'd actually been failing her in the exact way she was claiming, and that I felt ashamed and wanted to let her know how badly I felt for letting her down, especially since I had tremendous respect for her. I encouraged her to express all the despair, loneliness, hopelessness, and even anger, even the rage that she had been feeling. I had let my ego die and said I was ready to listen. Alicia started sobbing, and all the poison she'd been bottling up, maybe he did read Dom, Dom Gilmore's, had been, uh, all the poison she'd been bottling up for years came spilling out. Our relationship suddenly changed, and we began working together as a team. After a couple months of hard work, her depression lifted. Alicia told me that the moment that changed her life was when I admitted that I'd failed her. She, I don't know, I <laughs> sound like I'm crying, but I'm not. She said it helped enormously because someone was finally listening and believing what she was trying to say. It was only when I found truth in her criticism that therapy could be possible. Being able to find truth in another person's criticism is one of the five secrets of effective communication. Oh, tell me the other four, bitch. You'll learn more about these techniques later in the book, but one of the most important is disarming technique, which is what I used when working with Alicia. That's where you find genuine truth in a criticism, even if it seems unfair or untrue. When used skillfully, the disarming technique is extremely helpful and sometimes mind-blowing. And that's when I read this, the Law of Opposites. When you defend yourself from a criticism that is wrong, unfair, or false, you prove that the criticism is absolutely valid and the critic becomes even more convinced that the criticism is valid and justified. So if, he, if Dr. Burns would have gotten pissed at Alicia... She, that would have said to her, yep, I was right. In contrast, when you find the truth in a criticism that sounds completely unfair, exaggerated, or wrong, you immediately put the lie to rest and the critic is no longer believes the criticism. So, but, but that, but she, but he found the truth. There was an actual truth. She didn't understand. I mean, especially if you've been fucking sexually abused by a family member when you were a kid, Jesus, or by anyone when you were a kid, my fucking God, dude. You must have walls up like a motherfucker if you're not working that shit out in therapy. But Alicia, and I get why she was not able to say or articulate, I'm feeling used like I, I mean, she said it. She said it. This is worse than the incest. That's how, that's how it came out. But, and, and she was right. Cause what she meant was, I feel like I'm being used by you to just prove to yourself that you're a good therapist. That's what, but she couldn't find the word. You know, when we're, we're deep in our pain and we don't know what's going on, a lot of time the body, the brain detaches. That's when pe sometimes people uh, develop schizophrenia. But it's like, and then Jesus Christ, you can't find your words there or articulate yourself as well. It's just, it's just, oh, that was such a good example because we need positive examples. Because, you know, if you live in America, the example of the person that leads your country is. And so sometimes you need a positive example. Anyway. All right. Back to habits and addictions. I'm glad I, I'm glad I remember that because I really wanted to read that story. Uh, habits and addictions. Oh, okay. That's all I said. I said all I needed to say. Uh, I have many new tools that can rapidly reduce or eliminate therapeutic resistance and accelerate recovery. In fact, the tools I describe in this book represent the next revolution in psychotherapy and behavior change. Oh, isn't that exciting, y'all? 
These techniques are powerful, and in most cases, I believe you'll be able to use them on your own, even if you're not in therapy. And then the next chapter, he goes about people. We're just, that's what we're going to cover today. The resistance, y'all. The resistance. Guys, that was really good. I learned a lot. Hey, congrats on not killing yourself. Also, um, as well, I have merch. And I have merch that says, congrats on not killing yourself. Um, oh, we have one design that comes out that I was like, is this too dark? And I was like, no, this is what I want for my merch. And if someone doesn't want to buy it, they won't buy it. Because girl has had experience with suicide, me and other people, okay? So I'm very comfortable with talking about it because it happens a lot and people think about it a lot. But there's one, we, Kylie did a design that says, congrats on not killing yourself. And it's, it, there, but it's a, it's a skeleton, but it's like a thumbs up. <laughs> it says, congrats on not killing yourself in a circle. That, that is not on the line yet, but uh, some of the, the, a lot of the other designs are. So go to christinahutchinson.com slash merch or whatever and follow Christina Presents. And can you rate and review this on iTunes and tell people about it? Um, because I want to get a lot of uh, listens. It's my ego, y'all. It won't die. Guys, I love you very much. Have a safe week. Stay home if you can. And, you know, be safe. And wear your goddamn masks, okay? Okay? John Voigt, I got a message for you. Sorry, Angelina, that your dad's sucking right now, but that's okay. It happens. It's not your fault at all. All right. Bye, guys. I'll talk to you next Wednesday.